0: I'd like to ask you to keep all those previous Bible readings, if not open at the same time, at least in your minds. We will be returning to them shortly. To them, I'm going to add one more, the final three verses of last week's reading from Joshua 21, beginning at verse 43, our final Advent reading. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Shall we pray? Merciful and gracious Father, heavenly physician, bandage up our wounded souls, we pray. As we draw near to you now, would you draw near to us by your Spirit and rekindle his flame in our hearts and our lives, that we may be ready to encounter Jesus and may be shaped more in his likeness as we await him. And we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. I invite you to sit. So the title of today's sermon is An Advent Meditation for wounded souls. And I want to explain to you a little bit about what I mean by this. I do not want to be melodramatic. I do not want to encourage a sense of victimhood. I'm afraid that it's very tempting in the modern world, especially, actually, in the last 10 years or so, uh, to encourage people to feel like victims. Victimhood has become associated with a sense of validation. and. Um, It all has its roots in Marxism and the Frankfurt School and all kinds of tedious things, but the end result is that especially young people are encouraged to think that they have value and their ideas may be heard to the extent that they are oppressed or victims of something. And so people, of course, then create or exacerbate and amplify in their own minds and hearts all kinds of unwarranted ways in which they are Victims, quote-unquote. I don't want to encourage any of that. I hope that's obvious. What I do want to do is to speak to the actual objective reality of things. It is actually true, sorry, true, that our lives are not all that we wish they could be. It's actually true that we suffer and sometimes, God help us, inflict on others the painful consequences of living in a fallen world, it is actually true that our lives are not what we'd like them to be. We're not where we'd like to be, we don't live in the ways we'd like to, and we don't experience relationships in every other aspect of life, as perhaps those of us uh, who look back at our younger years confess that we once dreamed. Sometimes it's very simple. You're confronted day by day with the painful reality that your life feels like one long embodiment of Romans 7, 15 and 19, what Puritan John Owen called indwelling sin. I don't understand what I do, says the Apostle Paul. I don't do the good I want. It's the evil that I don't want. This is what I keep on doing. Sometimes that's it. Sometimes it's grief, the intrusion of death into our world and the horror it brings. A friend of mine, elderly pastor, once said, it's interesting, death is always a shock. The person for whom we're mourning might be 105 years old and died peacefully and predictably in company with all their family, joyfully resting now in Christ, and it's still a shock. Sometimes It's not sin or death, it's we're living in a world where we can start to see the bad outcomes of our stupid decisions. We have done stupid things in the past and now we're starting to pay for them. Or perhaps worse, you're watching somebody else you love, perhaps a child, living through the consequences of their own foolishness. Sometimes it's family. Sometimes it's strained relationships. I mean, we just had Thanksgiving. It's, it's almost become a joke. In fact, it has become a joke in the wider culture that you know Thanksgiving is that time of the year where you have to meet up with crazy Uncle Joe and all those weird cousins and pretend you like them. It's just... And the, like all caricatures, it has that grain of reality behind it because for many of us, our extended family encounters are not unalloyed joy. and Maybe it's our own fault. Maybe it's not entirely, but still, you think of family, you just think of a tangled mess of chaotic and broken relationships. Maybe it's illness. Do we have to say all the people we've been praying for for so many months? You talk about living in a sinful and broken world, and for them and their families, that's the thing that just shatters their imagination. Thank you. I'd not been thinking about that for 30 seconds, and now you've mentioned it again physical or emotional, and mental ill health. Sometimes it's just overwhelmedness with the daily realities of life, compounded all the more by the fact that all the other mums seem to get on fine. What's wrong with me? Or it's a broader frustration, a sense of deep-seated, almost anger at the foolishness and ignorance of those who hold positions of high office as we lurch from one political catastrophe to the next and you think "Why, why can't we have somebody normal and sane making decisions for us so if I needed to remind you perhaps those will be sufficient reminders of the brokenness of the world in which we live and my aim today is not to fix any of them My aim is more modest. I want to try to help us to understand them in biblical perspective, to see not even piece by piece what the Lord is doing in them, but that He's doing something in them, and hopefully by God's grace to navigate them more wisely because perhaps we have a kind of map that doesn't show us all the details, but at least shows us something of the destination and something of where we've come from and therefore something of how we should walk on the way in between. So I want to recall briefly the significance of Advent, then I'm going to work through all of our Bible readings today and the psalm that we read before we confessed our sins, and all the people went jeepers. We'll be home by midnight at the the absolute latest, briefly, through those text of scripture and we'll get to this final Advent reading in Joshua 21 just towards the end very briefly. So the significance of Advent, you all know this, Advent means arrival and at Advent we anticipate the arrival or celebrate the arrival of Christ. So in one sense we anticipate our celebration of his first Advent, his first arrival, we're looking forward to Christmas. In another sense Advent is looking forward to his final arrival the day when he will come in glory to judge the living and the dead, to raise us all bodily and to open up the horizons to a renewed heavens and earth. And the readings reflect this. Some of the readings are about his first coming, either looking forward with Mary or the prophets or looking back, like with Paul in 1 Timothy, the testimony given at its proper time, looking back at the unveiling of Christ. Sometimes, in some senses, they anticipate the final coming because of the grandeur of the vision they set out. And our situation, here's where we start to unpick the mess we're in. Our situation is very strange because we live in between these two comings of Christ, his first and his final coming. Old Testament scripture spoke of a coming day of the Lord where the Lord would put everything right. And one way of viewing New Testament fulfillment of that, anticipation is that that day of the lord has been split in two so that the salvation that the lord promised came first before last will come the final consummation of that promise and the judgment of all the world that the lord promised that's one way of thinking about uh the structure of history. We may return to that later on if we have time, but in the meantime, we're stuck in the middle. Like, in one sense, it's like mission accomplished, but in another sense, mission very much not accomplished, hence all the chaos I spoke about before. You look back at all that Jesus has done, I mean, and even if there were several items on that list in, that I read through a few minutes ago where you thought, yeah, that's a little personal, pastor. If you that's the case for you you can still look back and see all that Christ has done for you you can see his triumph over sin and death you can see his grace to you uniting you with him opening the privilege of a relationship with him in prayer and opening the gates of heaven so that we may sit before him by faith now and you can see actually truth be told that your life messed up though it is like mine is not quite the chaos it could be really human beings are capable of making a total pig's breakfast of every single thing, and here you are uh, seated and in your right mind, to quote somebody well how do do you think you got here? by the grace of the God who's at work in you, and yet you're still kind of wishing and in some some cases it, it takes the form of a future hope, doesn't it? and if I asked you not to tell me because you wouldn't want to tell everybody else, but to whisper in your own head, is there something that you really long for? And it's that unfulfilled hope, which you don't want to be ungrateful for all that Jesus has done, but honestly, he hasn't done everything yet. Not everything. And so Advent... I want to suggest is actually one of the most, if not the most, emotionally real times of the Christian year. Um, Pastor Neil explored recently at a Wednesday night Bible study the significance of the church year, and there are lots of reasons why it's significant. It's actually pastorally very valuable to work through the narrative of the ministry of Jesus. And at this time of year particularly, I think we find resonances with a lot of how we feel at Advent. Now, this tension that we experience, kind of pulled in two directions, wanting to look back and thank God, wanting to look forward and feeling this sense of loss because we're not there yet, this tension is actually reflected in our Bible readings. And I want to just walk through them briefly. Um, While you're turning back, if you would, to Psalm 72, if you have it. Perhaps you'd permit me just to lubricate the vocal cords for a moment. Psalm 72. This is a prayer um, of Solomon, either by him or written for him, but one way or another concerning his coronation. And, of course, it's an anticipation, therefore, of what the greater Solomon will do and what he will be. Jesus Christ will fulfill and answer and be the answer to all these prayers and you read through and you just think my goodness verse 4 may he defend the cause of the poor of the people give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor that's what jesus is going to do verse 6 may he be like rain that falls on the mown grass like showers that water the earth verse 8 this prayer is one that Jesus will answer. Let's, let's change it from a prayer into a statement of fact. Jesus will have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Desert tribes will bow down before him. His enemies will lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and the coastlands, all the places that are so far away that Jonah thought that if he could only flee there, he'd be far away from the Lord and the Lord wouldn't be able to catch him. It's Spain, actually. That's where Tarshish was. I don't think there's anything... Theologically significant in that. May they render him tribute, and so on. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. I've been meeting with one of the men in the church just recently a couple of times, and one of the things we did was to pray for our civil rulers. And it's just interesting, isn't it? You look at this and you think, uh, all kings will fall down before Jesus Christ. That's a prayer. Are we to believe that the Lord God will not answer this prayer in the one who is greater than Solomon? Verse 12. He delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy from oppression and violence. He redeems their life. And all those things I asked you to call to your mind. Now, 10 minutes ago, seem strangely at odds with what Jesus is supposed to be doing, don't they? This is, is hard to imagine a more spectacular picture of the reign of Christ. And the problem is, it just the more closely we look, the further we seem from that reality. And so the temptation, of course, is to defer all of this. Think of those two comings again. Say, oh, right, this stuff is all for the, the final coming of Jesus. It's all for the future. Jesus isn't actually ruling now in this way. So that's why the world's still in a mess. He's kind of been announced as king, but you know, he's not really ruling. He's sort of sitting, sitting on his crown, so to speak, uh, doing something else, rather than ruling heaven and earth. And the problem is, that's just not what the Bible says. The Bible says that Jesus is king now. It insists on it. Um, I was looking recently in Acts chapter 2, the first Christian sermon on the day of Pentecost where Peter, Peter preached about um, Jesus and um, he got to, towards the climax of his um, sermon. He points out that this Jesus, God has raised him up. And we've all seen that. And he's been exalted the right hand of God, and he's received from the Father the promise of the Spirit, and he's poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. That's not something you do until you're made king. The king is exalted to the right hand of God. The king is the one who receives the gifts of the conquest and then can pour them out for his people, and so the gift of the Spirit is rather like that. It's, it draws on the ancient practice of a, a, a king returning to his kingdom after conquering multiple armies of enemies and so on. He would um, return in triumph and distribute gifts to his people. Having ascended to his throne, he gave gifts to men. The book of Ephesians says the same thing. Well, here he's done that. I mean, he's on his throne. And it's exactly what Peter goes on and says. Um, David didn't ascend to heaven, he says. But he said, the Lord said to my Lord, that is to say, Yahweh the God of heaven and earth says to the one who's greater than David who is Jesus the Lord says to Jesus sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool therefore let all the house of Israel be assured of this God has made him Lord and Christ this Jesus whom you crucified is the king he is reigning over heaven and earth it is simply not true that all that stuff in Psalm 72 can be deferred to the distant future where it need make no impact on our lives now. Psalm 72 intensifies the problem and refuses to allow us to take the shortcut out of it. Yeah, we're still living in a broken and fallen world and one day Jesus will reign, one day his kingdom will be established. No, his kingdom is established now. And We cannot go a step further unless we're all ready to acknowledge that Jesus is still on the throne. He's been on the throne for 2,000 years. So, are you sick? Cripplingly sick? Jesus is still on the throne. Do you have that dark cloud descend on you every morning and nobody knows because you put on your game face when you eventually drag, drag yourself out of bed and go to work. Jesus is still on the throne. Does your extended family, not just, not just they're not nice to be with at Thanksgiving, they actually hate you. I've spoken to people like this, that their extended families hate them and go out of their way to make their lives miserable. Jesus is still on the throne. Are you... Uh, crushed nearly by the tangled mess of sin that, um, yeah, you're, you know that Jesus came to, to deal with sin, but pastor, you've got to understand, you, you don't know what it is I've done. You don't know what it is that I keep on doing. No, Jesus is still on the throne. Uh, are you, even this last week or two or three, grieving having lost a loved one, or having the memory of that loss rekindled. Jesus is still on the throne. And we will not go a step further. We cannot go a step further until we all acknowledge that. And if it weren't for the fact that this inevitably (laughs) uh, darkens the tone, and also that I'm not Pastor Garrett Craw, I would say, can I get an amen to that? Is Jesus still on the throne? Amen. Yes, he is. Hear that, Garrett? Pastor Garrett Crowell ask me about him later. C-R-A-C pastor down in Austin. And so Psalm 72 intensifies the problem. The next passage makes it worse. Turn with me to Isaiah 9. Um, this is one of my favorite uh, Old Testament um, predictions of the Messiah. But actually, it starts to make the tension, well, it doesn't solve it, but it starts to help us to see how to unpick it. But that tension of living in the in-between times, well, it's a promise of a birth of a child. I won't read the whole passage, but you know verse 6. To us a child is born to us a son is given the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called wonderful counselor mighty god everlasting father prince of peace of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of david and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the lord almighty shall accomplish this and we read didn't we in luke chapter one the announcement of the angel to mary This little baby will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. It seems that the angel Gabriel thinks that this text was fulfilled with the coming of Jesus. And look what it says. It's not just that Jesus is on the throne. In some abstract sense, but what's he doing from his throne? It's just fascinating the language in Isaiah nine verse one. Just look at it with me. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. Isn't gloom exactly what we felt? Isn't isn't gloom exactly what we feel when we contemplate the brokenness of our lives? And the king has come, and the prophet says there won't be any more gloom. Verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Well, that, that dark cloud of depression that hangs over me every morning seems to block most of the light out. It's not just Jesus is the king of the nations, Psalm 72, like Solomon. He's supposed to dispel my gloom, my misery, my darkness, my sadness. All of the emotional and personal correlates of the fact that the world is still in a mess, they're supposed to be gone. My goodness. And then you start to notice, If you, you have to look so carefully at the Bible. It drives me nuts sometimes. My job would be so much easier if it was like 100 times shorter and written in big print. <laughs> so we didn't really need to look at the details. But look carefully, and I read it to us already. Verse 7, it says... Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Not, we can expect an immediate transformation the moment he takes the throne, but we can expect the beginning of increase of his government and peace, which will have no end. It is not the case, Isaiah says, that Jesus is going to take the throne and everything's going to be fixed. It is the case that Jesus is going to take the throne, Isaiah says, and everything will start to be fixed and of the increase of its being fixedness, to coin a word, there will be no end. In other words, what Isaiah promises is uh, post-millennial eschatology. Well, who'd have thought it, right? He promises a gradual steady, so far 2,000 years long, and it doesn't seem like we're really that close to the end yet, growth in the kingdom of Christ and in our experience of the kingdom of Christ. It is the case that Jesus is on the throne, but it's not the kind of reign that does away with all the problems immediately. I mean, our king was crowned on earth before he was crowned in heaven. And what was he crowned with on earth? Thorns. You you can see, can't you? If you want to come after me, you need to take up your cross and follow me. The shape of cosmic eschatology, that is to say the shape of the history of the universe, cross, then resurrection, is the shape of personal eschatology. Thorns. Thorns. This is such a vitally important principle. It's actually why it's possible to read through the narratives of Scripture, read through what God's doing in Israel over hundreds of years, and then compress them into our experience. So, for example, you read the book of Judges. It's like 350 or 400 years. And basically the story is Israel keeps sinning again and again and again and again and again. And God keeps being gracious again and again and again. And occasionally he slaps them, but basically he's still being gracious the whole time. Does that ring any bells? For any of us? (laughs) That's 350 years, got compressed into your last six months, didn't it? Exactly, because personal eschatology mirrors cosmic eschatology. The the history of the universe is compressed into the history of each of our lives. So what kind of rain should we be expecting? Well, um, you're crowned with thorns, Genesis 3 thorns, the frustration and pain of just trying to do your job. I only wanted to be a farmer. I just wanted to sow barley and harvest barley. So what's all these weeds coming up? Thorny weeds. All I want to do is build my website. All I want to do is be a musician. All I want to do is whatever it is you want to do. All I wanted to be was be a mum. I didn't realise I had to be up four times a night per child. You know, yeah, thorns and thistles. Because that's the kind of crown You've re- and it's a crown you've received, because it's Jesus who is on the throne. Wouldn't we all like a king who didn't have to suffer, because then if we were like him, it'd be so much easier, which is exactly what Jesus' disciples wanted, it's exactly what Peter asked for, and it's exactly why Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, because it's a satanic desire to want to flee the suffering that is necessary in order to be crowned like Jesus. Um, quick theology lesson. Quick one, okay? Some of you have studied theology and you've, you've had um, this kind of shorthand for how Christian eschatology is to be described. Now and not yet. Hands up if you've heard that phrase. Oh my goodness. What happens if you try and learn theology on the internet? Stop it. It's wrong. Well, it's two-thirds right. Now, progressive Not yet. Now and not yet is a mil. Why? Because it evacuates present history of its eschatological significance. There's a now, Jesus came once. There's a not yet, Jesus will come in the future. And we all shrug our shoulders in the meantime because nothing's happening. Wrong. It's not definitive final, it's definitive progressive final, not that kind of progressive. (laughs) Sorry, I'm trying to lighten the atmosphere. Definitive, progressive, final. Now, steadily growing, not yet. So what's the kingdom like? Oh, it's like a loaf of bread that you make it and it suddenly goes... And No, it's like leaven, you mix it in, there's only a tiny bit of it, you mix it in and gradually it grows. Gradually, gradually, gradually. What's the kingdom like? It's like a seed and you plant it and it grows gradually, gradually gradually becomes this great big bush. And everyone says, well, mustard bushes aren't very big. What's he doing? He's doing a mustard seed. It's like, it's a miraculous mustard seed, stupid. (laughs) Because it's a miraculous tree that Jesus is building. And it's extremely painful, just like it was for him. So this it's not like something's gone wrong. It's one of the most significant things. It's the thing that people want to know when they're suffering is some version of has God abandoned me? Is God punishing me? Have I done something wrong? It's like on the, on the only two occasions when Jesus had the opportunity to say that he denied it because he, does, he wants you to know there's nothing that's gone wrong. Now, okay, it might be fatherly chastisement but even that's not wrong in the sense that what do you want in your sane moments from your father if not loving chastisement? Actually, Suffering is just where God puts us to move towards glory like he did with Jesus. He loves Jesus a very great deal and he didn't withhold from him the cross even when Jesus asked. So patience. Which actually is intriguing. I mean, just to jump around a little bit in the Bible because why not? 1 Timothy 2 um, I mean, you struggle to think why this is an Advent reading until you notice uh, verse 6. It's um, Paul is looking back in First Timothy 2, 6 to the, the gift of Christ, which is the testimony given at the proper time. I think that's probably what's going on. And he's a ransom for all. So we look, he's looking back to that moment when Jesus came. And what... what that's the, the rationale for the imperative that he gives at the beginning of the text. Now, what's the imperative he gives at the beginning of the text? He says, first of all, then, I urge that prayers be made. In fact, he doesn't say prayers. He says, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings, which is to say every conceivable kind of prayer you can possibly be imagined. Imagine, be made for all people, and specifically, verse 2, for kings and those in high positions. So there you are. That a quick, quick lesson in public theology for everyone who's frustrated again by the midterms. Right. This is public theology. This is political engagement. You, because there is a... To engage with the king who is ruling the universe, you don't need to go to Capitol Hill. Now, if you find yourself in Capitol Hill, by all means, say hi from me. Give him a letter saying, please, will you uphold justice and righteousness? Right? But you don't need to go there to petition the king of kings. Actually, this is the paradox, much of what passes for political activism is motivated by a tacit denial that Jesus on the throne actually has political power. It's not that we shouldn't write to our senators and members of parliament, if you're British or whatever. It's not that we shouldn't do that. But it, we shouldn't think we're not doing political theology if we're what just praying because you're just calling on the king of kings to see that that rock cut out not by human hands gets a little bit bigger so it might crush some of those clay and iron feet of the idolatrous kingdoms of this world so an old friend of mine is a pastor he he used to say um, he was talking to pastors but the message is actually equally true for everybody in different ways He says, you don't pray about your work. Prayer is the work. Now, obviously, he's not saying don't do any sermon prayer. That's not what he's saying. But he's trying to flip the thing around the other way. The prayer is the work. Finally, very briefly, I promise. As briefly as I can. Joshua 21. Now, I said it's a fourth Advent reading. Why? Well, look at it. Joshua 21, 43 to 45. What we've been thinking about is a glorious picture of how the kingdom ought to be, which doesn't really seem to match reality, and how are we supposed to live in that kind of context? Well, we've been talking about that. So verse 43 of Joshua 21, "'Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land "'that he swore to give to their fathers.'" Tell me when you spot the problem with this, by the way. And they took possession of it, and they settled there, and the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he'd sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into his hands. Well, apart from the Jebusites and the Philistines and all the people mentioned in Judges chapter 1 and all the people that David had to conquer several hundreds of years later. Um, in, in fact, in Joshua 13, it says, Joshua, you're old and there's still very much land to be conquered. conquered. Later in jo- Joshua 23, it says again, the Lord has given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies. Then in verse 7, seven verses later, it says, starts so talking about all those ungodly nations that you're not supposed to be influenced by who are in the land like what is going on so how is it conceivably true that 21 verse 45 not one word of all the good promises that the lord had made to the house of israel had failed how is it true that everything's come to pass when it is patently obvious to the merest child that it has not all come to pass now Uh, This is the point at which the commentaries on Joshua get rather lengthy. And depending on which breed of commentator you read, you you find different attempts. The most boring ones are the liberal ones, because they just immediately say, well, this is just just contradiction within the book of Joshua, and it's like, yawn, really? Like, like, (laughs) thousands of scholars over hundreds of years read this text and didn't detect any contradiction, and then suddenly you come along in mid-19th century England, and you think that yeah, whatever, really. Um, That's not the solution. It's not that this is like some incoherent rambling ahistorical mishmash that isn't actually true in any sense at all. There is some truth in the idea of gradual progress. The Lord promises through Moses twice, once in Exodus and once in Deuteronomy, that um, he will not give them the whole land all at once, lest the wild beasts become too numerous for them. So there is some gradual progress getting on. The problem with that as an explanation, of course, is that at this point, the progress is supposed to be over, and yet it's patently not. And so what's going on here? What's going on here is that the Lord is teaching his people how to speak and how to think and how to live in the light of his promises when they don't seem to be yet fulfilled. It's a, in a sense, it's a very simple point, but it's actually a very difficult one to grasp, he's, to grapple with. He, he's saying that when you're in a, a situation in your life or in history where it looks like the Lord's promises are not entirely fulfilled, We are to live in the light of their future fulfillment. He's trying to show them the the liturgy for life. All God's promises are yes and amen in Jesus. Paul's doing the same thing right there. And so it's teaching us not to be pressured by the tension of that Advent experience, not to be pressured into pessimism. Not to, not to resolve the problem by saying, oh, maybe Jesus hasn't done it all. No. Rather, to experience the painful realities of life in faith. Like, of course the Canaanites are still in the land. But still, not one of God's promises have failed. Of course I still sin. Yes, of course you do. But... Uh, only as one who has been set free from sin. And so the fight can carry on, just as later generations of Israelites will carry on the fight against the Canaanites in the land. Like, they're not going to give up just because it's all been done. They're going to profess God's promises are sure while they carry on fighting. Can you see the difference? So, of course, you still have those strained relationships in your family but you have those relationships as one who knows about how to reconcile broken relationships, (laughs) right? You know about sacrifice and blood covering your sins. You know how to love because you've been shown love. Of course you still grieve, but you grieve not as others do who have no hope. Of course you're still a victim. Like, come on, give me a break. You're a victim of people and illness and bad education, even when it was well intended, and emotional turmoil and depression and all kinds of things that nobody can do, quote-unquote, anything about. But you are only a victim as one who will be raised. Raised triumphant. Raised victorious. Raised perfected. You're a Christian first and everything else second. Let's pray, shall we? Merciful Father, we ask that you lift our eyes so they may be fixed on Jesus, the author of our faith, and the perfecter the one who brings it to completeness to fullness to completion and perfection so that being conformed day by day into his likeness we may increasingly live out in our lives now what will be true on the last day and we pray in jesus name amen